My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders of our church. If this is your first time with us, we are delighted to have you with us. Thanks for joining, joining us. As a Christian church, we officially believe that nobody is too far gone for the grace of God. But when push comes to shove, don't most of us have that profile in our minds of the sort of person who would never become a Christian? If you truly don't have that profile in your mind, I praise God for you. I'm really glad that you're here to help the rest of us. Because for the rest of us, I'd like you to imagine that person or that group of people whom you're prone to think are undeserving of the mercy of God. Maybe you imagine a drunk driver who took the life of someone close to you. Maybe you imagine a family member who abused you when you were young. Or maybe a rapist or a racist or a child predator. Maybe you envision a dictator of a country or a serial killer. Whoever it is, I want you to have them in mind. I think that many of us have those people whom we would consider the wrong kind of people. I myself have someone I've known for decades. In one season of my life, I prayed regularly for this person that asking God to send them to hell. I'm not proud of it. But until the last few years, it's been nearly impossible for me to picture that person ever coming to faith in Christ. The main idea for us this morning is that God rescues the wrong kind of people. God rescues the wrong kind of people. We'll see this in Jonah chapter 3. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 727. Where the point is made in this chapter in such an extreme way that some have concluded it must be fiction. It must be satire even. But we'll see that the sort of salvation God brings is far too strange to be satire. It must be real. Or else there's no hope for any of us. We'll consider Jonah 3 in three parts that you can see in your outline. Imminent destruction, immediate remorse, and insane mercy. Let me pray for us as we dive into it. Father in heaven, please open our eyes that we might see here in your word this insane mercy of yours where you rescue the wrong kind of people. 
Help us to see ourselves for who we are apart from Christ, that we might see your insane mercy toward us and that we might extend it toward others. Fill us, Lord, with your Spirit and transform us to see your world and the people around us the way you see them. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God rescues the wrong kind of people. Let me show you what that looks like in the experience of the prophet Jonah. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast... Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The first thing I'd like to talk about from this text is imminent destruction. We need to see this to understand why God rescues the wrong kind of people. Imminent destruction in verses 1 through 4. Up to this point, this, this brief book of Jonah has focused on the character of Jonah, the prophet from Israel who would rather die then proclaim God's message to Israel's enemies. He ran in the exact opposite direction, but the Lord would not allow him to run, and the Lord would not allow him to sleep, and the Lord would not even allow him to die. So in verse 1 here, the word comes to him a second time, sending him to Nineveh to proclaim God's message there. And what exactly was God's message 
for Nineveh. What was the thing that was so distasteful to Jonah that he would rather die than proclaim it? What's in verse 4? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message. A message of total doom and gloom. A message of imminent destruction. I think we can be pretty confident that Jonah had more than one sentence to speak to these people. He had spent a whole day preaching. So verse 4 must be a summary of the Lord's message through Jonah. But we can conclude with confidence that in verse 4, Jonah is not twisting God's message or leaving anything out. Because verse 5 tells us straight out that when the people took heed to Jonah's message, they were believing God. The point here is that Jonah finally obeys God to proclaim God's message in Nineveh. And that message is a message of imminent destruction. The people of Nineveh had 40 days left to live. There was no condition put on it. There was not an offer of rescue. That might sound shocking. That God might send a prophet only to proclaim death and destruction to an entire people group? So you need to know what was going on historically. What, after all, was this great city of Nineveh? Who were these people? Well, Nineveh was the capital city of the empire of Assyria. Assyria had become an expansive empire conquering lands and peoples in order to accumulate power. But they were about far more than just conquering lands and peoples. They were about the complete and utter destitution and humiliation of the people they conquered. They would impale their captives naked on poles. They made slaves of their victims, forcing them to build and then operate siege works against their own people. They literally dragged their prisoners from their homelands by hooks, beating them with cudgels all along the way. According to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, Assyrians commonly impaled dismembered, decapitated, and disfigured, defeated peoples. And do you know how we know these things about Assyria all these centuries later? The reason we know about it is because they themselves celebrated these things in their artwork. We've been able to dig up Assyrian reliefs portraying and celebrating their own inhuman and oppressive violence. You see, these people were not merely ambitious and powerful. They were terrorists. Do you remember in 2015 when 
ISIS beheaded groups of Christians and posted a series of videos on the internet to celebrate what they had done? These are precisely the sort of people the Ninevites were, only far worse. Cruel, powerful, vindictive, and proud of it. And they weren't just a small band of rascals and terrorists in the desert. They were an entire civilization, a mighty world empire. And those are the people to whom God ordered Jonah to preach destruction. They are absolutely the wrong kind of people and they fully deserve the destruction coming to them. Now, I need to deal with an important question before we can move on in this text. If this nation, this Assyrian empire was so bad, so evil then why was Jonah so unwilling to go and tell them that they were going to die? Why did he want to die himself instead of delivering this news? You should know that the message that evil nations are going to die was not a new message or an unusual message for God to give to one of his prophets. The prophet Amos, who lived near the same time as Jonah, says this in his book, chapter 1. Yahweh roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So because of the sins of Damascus, I will send a fire and it shall devour the strongholds. The prophet Isaiah who also lived near this time. He has stuff to say specifically about the kingdom of Assyria. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, he says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, Yahweh will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And after we finish preaching through Jonah, we're going to do a deep dive next into the book of the prophet Nahum, which was written about a hundred years after the events described in Jonah. And Nahum is all about Nineveh. But Nahum has nothing to say but death and destruction for Nineveh. And that is very good news for the people of God who have suffered at Assyrian hands. So this message of destruction was not unique to Jonah. The thing that is unique is that Jonah is one of the only prophets who is commanded by God to deliver that message directly to the nation coming under judgment. You see, Amos, Isaiah, Nahum, and others were all speaking to the people of Israel or Judah, God's own people. And the message was, you know those terrorists who have been hurting you? Don't worry, I'm going to annihilate them. 
But for Jonah, the message is different. Hey, terrorists, the one true God is going to annihilate you. And that made all the difference to him. Why? Precisely because by speaking directly to them, he would be giving them an opportunity to ask the very question they pose in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. By presenting this opportunity to Nineveh, declaring a message of imminent destruction, God was removing that opportunity from Israel, and that was something Jonah did not want any part of. So the message is not complex. It's a message of imminent destruction to the most evil people on the planet. And the prophet hates that because it gives them an opportunity to do something about it. And that is the sort of opportunity that up to this point has typically been reserved for God's own people, Israel. Now, how do you think Nineveh is going to respond to this? Let me put it this way. Imagine traveling to Iraq and marching your way into an ISIS stronghold with a bullhorn shouting out that Allah is far inferior to Jesus Christ, the only true God. And Jesus Christ is coming in 40 days to wipe out the full number of infidels among Allah's worshipers. What do you think would happen? They would not allow you to continue speaking. Probably by separating your head from your body. So what happens in Nineveh? That's point number two. Immediate remorse. Verse 3 tells us that it took three days to cross the whole city of Nineveh, only to then inform us in verse 4 that Jonah had to go only one-third of the way in before the fireworks broke out. Despite this plain message of judgment from a rather unwilling prophet, in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They stopped eating. They stopped partying. They stop celebrating violence. They begin to grieve and to mourn. These Ninevites believed God. They expressed remorse. They experienced an immediate and dramatic change to their attitudes and affections. Verse 6, Jonah is still presumably working his way through the city, but the word gets ahead of him to the king's palace. You see, Jonah didn't even have to talk to the king himself. The word gets there, and even the king shows immediate remorse. He issues a proclamation that both man and beast must show remorse. No eating or drinking, no fancy clothes, only prayer and immediate behavioral change. Verse 8, he says, no more evil or violent behaviors. The response here is so immediate and so dramatic that it, it seems exaggerated. 
It's so extreme that it reads almost like satire. It's the sort of scene you might expect to see on Saturday Night Live with sheep and cows going around in itchy morning clothes and joining in on the prayer services. But the scriptures present it as historical fact. Maybe that sounds crazy. Lots of people out there will say that Jonah must be a work of fiction or legend. You got that thing with the fish, right? Crazy. You got this kind of response from the terrorists? Crazy. So who am I to say that it's a historical fact? Well, the argument for the historicity of Jonah goes like this. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus considered this story to be historical fact. Jesus then rose from the dead to prove that he was Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, we can trust that this is historical fact. So to deny the factuality of Jonah's narrative is to deny that Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, knew what he was talking about. The real point, however, that I want to get to here, is that everything that happens in Nineveh, builds up to the climactic question of verse 9. Who knows? God may. See, there's just like the, the ounce of hope here. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They know they are dead men and women. They recognize their way of life must come to an end. But they have come face to face with a God who might actually turn aside from his fierce anger. The bad news is that they deserve to perish. The good news is that they have met a God who rescues the wrong kind of people. So how does the tension of their question resolve? Point number three, insane mercy. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. The very thing they hoped for as a mere outside possibility becomes reality. God relents of the disaster he said he would do. He does not do it. Here is the God of Israel. Having told the enemies of his people that their days are numbered. The terrorist nation that has maimed, raped, pillaged, and made destitute. God was poised to bring all of their evil to a swift end. But they decided to end it themselves. And God exhales an extravagant and lavish mercy upon them. He does not treat them as they deserve. He gives them more time and another chance. Next week in chapter 4, we'll get to consider how this turn of events sits with the prophet Jonah. And then after that, we'll see what happens a generation or two later 
with the prophet Nahum. But for this week, we just need to stew in how insane God's mercy appears to be. I've often heard people complain about how unfair it seems for God to send people to hell. What kind of a God would ever do that? Friends, what a text like this requires us to grapple with is how unfair it appears for God to not send certain people to hell. See, the concepts of hell and judgment, this problem of evil in Western philosophy, these things are problems really only if you have never experienced vicious or violent human wickedness. Innocent Syrian refugees don't struggle with the doctrine of hell nearly as much as many middle-class Western philosophers. If you saw your spouse executed, your daughters raped, and your sons enslaved as child soldiers all before your very eyes, right before you yourself are driven from your home into foreign lands, you would understand quite well how kind and good it is for an all-powerful God to bring an end to evil once and for all, sending the perpetrators of such evil to hell for eternity if need be. But then, to have that same God extend an insane mercy to the doers of unconscionably evil deeds. Well, that sure is something. That just might rattle your faith and challenge who you thought that God really was. That is until you become the object of his judgment, until it is your life on the line, until your dirty deeds of rebellion against him are found out and brought into the light. And I'm not saying that every person in this room is as evil as Nineveh or Isis, but we all need to come to that point where we realize that we are still the wrong kind of people because all we can do then is desperately hope that God does in fact rescue the wrong kind of people if you do not yet follow Jesus Christ please know that God delights to relent of the disaster that he has said he will do to you who knows God may turn and relent. I dare you to give it a try. All you need to do is stop doing what you are doing and instead acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that he is Lord, not just over your spiritual life, but Lord over your love life, Lord over your financial plan, Lord over your speech and your dreams for the future. Bow before him and honor him in all of life and his mercy will flood in your direction. How do I know this? 
Well, because Jesus, that Lord of heaven and earth I mentioned earlier, he told us himself that his mercy is on a hair trigger setting. In John chapter 3, he says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But Jesus Christ's mercy is not automatic. It is not something he owes to anybody. It does not come to Nineveh by default. It comes only because they turn around. Because God saw what they did. How they turned from their evil way. Because they cease their evil violence and pledge allegiance to the true God. The same goes for you and me. He rescues the wrong kind of people. But it only hits home when people turn from their evil way, turn from their worship of themselves to worship and honor Him as the one in charge. To refuse to change and to continue doing whatever you think is best is to deny yourself access to Him. And His mercy will not reach you. Far better for you to run out onto a well-lit field, waving your arms, jumping up and down, coming out of the darkness and hiding and shouting, I yield! You alone are God. Please have mercy. Even though Jonah chapter 3 may seem exaggerated to the nearly to the point of satire, you need to know that you have far more reason to turn away from your evil than the ancient Ninevites ever had. You have access to the historical records of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. They're in the Bible. They're called the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You now know that Jesus claimed to be not only a prophet, but the chosen one sent by God. You can access eyewitness accounts of his supernatural miracles and the many other things he said and did. You see, while Jonah wished he could die instead of telling Nineveh about God's judgment, Jesus chose to die instead of letting you and me suffer God's judgment. While Jonah did speak God's message with reluctance, perhaps more than a little vindictiveness, Jesus spoke God's message with far greater clarity and compassion. And even though they didn't have much to go on, the people of Nineveh turned aside from their evil and trusted God. Friends, you have far, far more to go on than they had. Will you not turn aside from your evil to trust this God? Here, let me show you where we see Jesus acknowledging the historicity of Jonah's ministry to Nineveh. Okay, don't don't miss this point from Matthew 12, verse 41. Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, the people he was talking to in the first century. 
And the, the men of Nineveh will condemn this generation. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus claimed to be something greater than Jonah. And if you and I will not turn away from our selfish and self-centered choices to trust him, then we are doomed to a greater judgment than the people of Nineveh. On the final day of judgment, they will scratch their heads and gape in amazement that someone would be so foolish as to reject the message delivered by Jesus. Now, what about those of you who already serve Jesus as Lord? What does this chapter have to say to you? Perhaps the most important application for us this morning is that we must trust that nobody is beyond the possibility of rescue. God delights to save the wrong kind of people. Do you think the Lord can do anything about your aggressive neighbor or your atheistic professor or your apathetic colleague or your abuser? Do you fear that your children or your parents or your grandparents or your siblings or cousins will never show an interest in serving King Jesus? If they don't repent, they will be destroyed. But these are the easy cases. Nearly everybody here, I think, could tell you stories of people they never expected to believe who ended up believing. Aaron and I could tell you about a sister-in-law whom one of our unbelieving siblings first met at a bar one night. But just a few years ago, that dear woman pledged her allegiance to King Jesus. And she is now closer to us than some others who are connected to us through blood. But I say those are the easy cases because few such people are living in celebration of outright wickedness and inhumanity. Do you think the Lord can do anything about the government? Congress or the president? Do you think the Lord can save the immoral media or movie industry? Do you think he could do anything about those lobbyists for the continued mass murder of the unborn? Or of those turning children and parents against one another in matters of sexuality or gender identity? Do you think the Lord can do anything about ISIS or Hamas or wicked militias enslaving child soldiers or communist China or Kim Jong-un? The good news is that God will bring all evil to an end. In a few weeks, we'll see from the prophet Nahum that Nineveh's repentance did not last very long. And in the end, God did have to utterly wipe them out. God will do the same with the terrorists and the dictators of today. But if they turn to him, his mercy is just ready to break out against them, toward them. 
trust that nobody is beyond the possibility of rescue. He delights to save the wrong kind of people. If you fail to grasp that, you have not understood the mercy of Christ. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. So if you've got a problem with the people Jesus might rescue, your problem is not with those people. Your problem is with your Lord. And this is something I've had to grapple with very deeply in my heart. Isn't it the case that you and I are the wrong kind of people? Again, I'm not saying that you're as bad as terrorists. But none of us deserved to be made children of God or co-heirs with Jesus. None of us deserved to find a life that never ends or a joy that cannot run out. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians to consider their calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Let us delight in this ridiculous, insane mercy of Jesus Christ so that more people would turn away from their evil and selfishness to find life and true satisfaction in worshiping the true king. According to Jonah 3, evil deserves imminent destruction. But for those who demonstrate immediate remorse... God, through Jesus Christ, shows an insane degree of mercy. God rescues the wrong kind of people. This kind of salvation is too strange for satire. It must be the real deal. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, who are we to stand before you, to come before you? but you have set your value on your people because of Jesus Christ. And so we appeal through him for mercy to help us in our time of need, for mercy on our country, on our governments, on our media, on our world. We ask that you would please show mercy and send forth your word and your kingdom that evil might come to an end. And change can take place. We ask these things for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.